eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Keely. Hey, Chris. Welcome to Heard It on the Sidelines. Heard It. Heard It on the Sideline with Shotgun Spratling. Spratling. Welcome to the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast, part of the Peristyle podcast family. I'm your host, Shotgun Spratling, and I'm joined in studio, first time, for Anthony Grieb being in studio. Anthony, thanks for taking taking the time to make the drive over here to the west side and coming out to the studio. You know, what's your first initial thoughts on being in studio for the first time? Well, it's a big honor, you know, from all my, my times watching the live show to finally be here in studio on a long drive. It took me an hour to get here, but it was worth it. Uh, it's a great spot. Honestly, I really like it. Real cozy. The AC is working nicely. So, you know, it's a good place. Yeah, if you guys hear that in the background, that might be the AC. It's 80-something degrees in this room. We are not turning the AC off right now. But, Anthony, glad you can make it out here. He got a free dinner out of it, so it's it's okay, yeah, it folks. Don't, it. don't feel bad for him about making that drive. But we want to jump into some a little bit of breaking news here. Um, as we're recor- recording this on a Tuesday evening, the LA Times just put out a story about USC is going to have a collective. But USC is not so happy about the fact that they're about to have a collective. Uh, it appears that you know some some boosters, uh, donors to USC are going to set up a NIL collective, and it's coming to USC football. They want to give a basically a living salary is but what they would like to call it. Um, you know, for players, for every player that stays academically eligible. And the school is saying this is not exactly what we want. They're trying to stay away from the NCA. You know, the story just came out. If you guys get a chance, get over to the LA Times to check it out. But Anthony, reading that story that just came out a couple hours ago, what's kind of your thoughts on this uh, kind of advancement of NIL in the USC football kind of uh, you know landscape? Yeah, well, it seems this, like this was kind of bound to happen. Uh, I think there was a lot of dis- or not disinterest, but displeasure with the Boulevard and. People weren't really sure how it was working, if it was being effective. And I think this is just a collective of donors that are and boosters that are just trying to help out players as much as possible. Uh, you said it; it's kind of they want to provide the equivalent of a base salary and uh, for anyone that's academ- academically eligible. And players will basically have to perform community service, take part in charitable work with local organizations, and then they'll receive that base pay, and then it'll be. Um, basically divided among or how it will be divided among his players is still up in the air it's an interesting development um this is the first that i've heard about something like this um i'm not sure if any other schools are doing this but the way the athletic department will react is what i'm going to pay attention to because they're obviously not in line with this they're encouraging people to go through the boulevard they even had a meeting uh with donors encouraging them to go through that so them basically defying the boulevard creating their own one uh, surely won't go well with the athletic department 
Yeah, very interesting that you have that divide. Now, this is this is kind of the you know the, as everyone calls it the wild wild west. The NIL stuff just continues to you know evolve and, and develop in different ways. And some schools have been super aggressive with it. USC has been kind of cautious and wanting not to run afoul of the NCAA. And I think they're concerned that this could be something that would potentially run afoul of the NCAA. But you know, listening to uh, I believe the guy's name is Dale Reck who is kind of, you know, given the spokesperson in this article at least, that he's saying, hey, we're going to do everything the NCAA says. We're going to follow all those rules. We're just we're just going to be doing a little bit more than the university is currently doing. So we'll see how that kind of all works out. Like I said, this is a story that just came out a couple hours ago. So we'll see how it progresses from here. And if we hear any more from the, uh, from the athletic department side, I know Mike Bone gave a statement and said, hey, basically – we want you guys to go through the boulevard if you want to help, uh, you know, support USC. But there have been some issues that donors, you know, people that are looking to help contribute have had with the idea of boulevard. And one of the big ones that we've had on our message board is that 50% of your money goes towards where you want it to go, whether that's football, whether that's basketball, whether it's water polo, whatever it is. The other 50% is kind of left up uh, to, to the boulevard to decide where they decide, see fit for it, whether that be administrative fees for them, you know, and paying for the creative, you know, the people that are, you know, creating all this stuff for the players and stuff, or, you know, giving it to other athletes at the school. So it's interesting that, you know, there has been some pushback on that. We'll see if the, you know, the, you know, the stay doubted people and Boulevard kind of make some adjustments there, or, and if this kind of pushes those adjustments to go through a little bit quicker. So it's, it's interesting to see how this is kind of, kind of developing and developing before our eyes. And that's kind of been the NIL process throughout the, the last year and a half is, you know, some schools being super aggressive and some being cautious and feeling like, Hey, we're going to lift behind a little bit and trying to play a little bit of catch up. And I feel like that's how USC fans feel right now a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, the Boulevard also, it's mentioned in this article that they had uh, pitched the members of the UIC Scholarship Club, uh, which obviously includes some top donors. They also had two Zoom meetings last month outlining the organization's goals. And one of the slides uh, from the presentation shows that Boulevard set a fundraising goal of $75 million, uh during the next five years, amounting to $15 million per year. Uh, I'm not sure they'll be able to achieve that uh, just off the basis. I don't know what you think. I mean, that's pretty aggressive there, but you know, you're seeing other schools do that. And the interesting thing now will be, if that's their goal, can they reach that if there's other collectives out there? And that's been something that's kind of come up at, at some different schools. Like Ohio State, I think, has three, four, five different collectives that are doing different things. And how do those all package together? Uh, you, you know, I've talked with some some coaches in various sports, and, you know, sometimes there's, in, there's input from them. Uh, whether that's supposed to be the way it's, uh, it's supposed to be directed or not, that sometimes they have some input into where the dollars are going. And other times it's just kind of, you know, the, the collectives are kind of guessing what the coaches want and who they want to, you know, who they think deserves that money. And, you know, that's what's making it, again, just super interesting as you see all the deals come out and you see kids that are, you know, signing some of the, these uh, NIL deals around the country, whether it be before they even make it to college or before they've even made any impact for a college. Yeah. And the an interesting part for me is the, the vague term of a base salary. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is that? What does that really mean? Well, I don't know if you saw the SMU uh, news come out. I believe it was yesterday that SMU is going to pay at least one of their collectives is going to try to pay thirty six thousand dollars, I believe, a year to each athlete in wow. football and basketball. And 
that's a ton of money yeah. there, and that's not the only collective that they have. Then you know, there's some other other ones as well. I know USC and UCLA was just uh, just uh, reported today. You know, both of them are giving basically the max amount that can be given under the Austin Austin ruling, uh, and I think that's somewhere around six thousand dollars or whatever, as long as you are in academic good standing. So they're trying to do you know what they can per the NCAA rules, but you, you just see some of these dollar figures are going to keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, you know, as the competition ramps up for for players and for athletes, and you know, for for those potential wins, because we all as much as it's about X's and O's, it's just as much about Jimmy's and Joe's. Because those one on one reps, you can still get beat uh, even if you don't have a great scheme. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really what I'm interested in. And also, did you hear the SMU name for their their uh, organization? Also, happens to be Boulevard. Yep. Now they're spelling it out instead of you know making it a short. Uh, you know, taking out all the vowels like USC has done. So we'll see, uh, you know, which boulevard reigns supreme eventually. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'll give it to – USC should still reign supreme, you feel like? I mean, if you're comparing USC and SMU, USC should. Yeah. But we'll see what happens. Yeah. Remember, SMU once was on top of the football world Absolutely. with the Pony Express, and then the NCAA came in and cut them down, uh, you know, giving them – the you know the the death penalty basically and so they have not recovered from that in the 80s so usc got some very harsh sanctions can they now recover and this is the time for them to recover now and lincoln riley as the head coach let's transition into fall camp has started but even before fall camp we got a unique opportunity to have a media day with some of the players and coaches and i thought it was a really great idea and it was really awesome to kind of get to talk to players a little bit more and coaches more than the five minutes you may get after a practice when, hey, they're ready to get back, or if they're at the Coliseum, they're ready to get back on campus. They got, you know, they got stuff to do, they got studying to do. This was an opportunity before camp started to get in there, have a have some chats with people and kind of pick their brains and see. And I, I thought it was an awesome idea and I really enjoyed that the USC put it together and kind of getting to know some of the players. What were your takeaways from Media Day? I know you sat down with some of the players that I didn't get a chance to talk to. Um, you know, we kind of bounced around, did some different things, but we tried to divide it up as much as possible so that we would cover everybody and get to talk with everyone at least as, as a full staff. What were your, your takeaways from Media Day? Yeah, this was a really interesting day. I mean, obviously the first time that that USC has done this. We were able to talk to, I think, about 20-so athletes. Um, I was able to talk to you know, Xavier Alford among them, uh, Brett Nealon, who shared some really interesting things about uh, the culture and just the accountability and some of the things that they've had to do. I know he touched upon how in the beginning, once uh, Lincoln Riley, the new staff, came, they were being held to a standard where if they missed anything from a workout, a class, a tutor, uh, they were subject to up-downs, the whole team. Uh, and it started up about 200 up-downs, and then it dwindled down to single digits. <laughs> and he was he was just like, that's just pretty incredible how we've evolved and how we've kind of bought in. And players really weren't, you know, subject to going, you know, in the beginning they were just saying, hey, you know, what's going on? Like, why are we doing this? And they were saying, hey, come on, like, we got to pick each other up. And they started doing that. They started picking each other up. And those numbers dwindled down. So that's a good sign in terms of that accountability and that culture. Um, and obviously, we heard from Jordan Addison, which was the first time that that we'd able to be able to talk to him. I thought he was great. Um, I think I heard. Obviously, I wasn't really interviewing him, but I heard the recording after. I thought he was great. Um, you know, he he talked about NIL accusations. Talked about you know the former Pitt head coach, all of that. Um, and then we also were able to talk to position coaches, which was great. And I think overall, an event that was great for content. But the bad part is that you mentioned off air. 
it came about a day before fall camp. So we had to really get together with putting those stories. Yeah, unfortunately, because we got so much good stuff that we're like, oh, we want to get this, this, and this. And you probably could get three or four content pieces out of each interview when you talk to someone for 15 or 20 minutes. Like I talked to Makai Blackman for, I think, 18, 19 minutes, and I haven't got a chance to it because I was at a wedding this weekend. So that's some content that is going to be some, you know, maybe some long form stories for me to, to get to build on a little bit as we go forward. But it would be great to have, you know, a week or 10 days uh, beforehand. But unfortunately, you know, the players get some free time and, you know, thankfully they do, they get to be, you know, regular, you know, 18 to 22 year olds, but, uh, you know, so they're going to be back on campus for that day before camp. So we'll take whatever we can get in that regard because it was such a fun event and, a, and an interesting, different opportunity for us to, to get to know them. But then, you know, we talked to uh, media day and that the media day went to, I think it was 6 PM. And then, you know, if you got instant analysis, you're writing a couple stories, you know, it's quickly, it's seven, eight, nine, 10 PM. Well, you better get to bed early because yep. First practice was coming 7 a.m. the next day. Um, and then, you know, they've been in the Coliseum for a couple of practices. You got a chance to get out to the Coliseum last night, a night practice. So it's interesting, one, just the changes in the schedule and, you know, them kind of floating around from mornings to afternoons to evenings and just depending on – and there's really nothing that is causing that. That's just, This is just the coaching staff, it seems like, kind of shaking it up because – you know, this is fall camp. There's no classes. So you're not really planning around anything else necessarily. What's kind of been your take, you know, getting out there to see practice and see, you know, that first 20 minutes or so? And what, what do you kind of make of the schedule and how they're kind of going about this fall camp in a little bit different way than what USC had done previously under Clay Helm? Yeah, so Lincoln Riley, he had mentioned, uh, I think during the first fall camp, someone had asked him why he was changing the times. And, and his idea was basically we want to make sure they're ready at any time their bodies are prepared at any time no matter what time we play um, which is i think a good idea no matter if you have a game at 10 a.m noon night you want to make sure you're prepared so that's his rationale i think the coaching staff uh, what they're trying to build um yeah i was at coliseum last night uh, it was a night practice at the coliseum which to be honest when we had a uh, night practices uh last spring and even during the fall it was really never at the coliseum usually at uh, the practice field. So it was it was cool to be there. Um, we saw, obviously, their first 20, 30 minutes of practice. Starts with stretching, um, then doing some drills. And then we saw some up-tempo play that we weren't a- actually able to record. Um, we usually were able to record that entire session. But the reason why we couldn't record is because they were actually lining up in off. It was a full offensive team. So you could see the quarterback on the center, the lineman. It kind of gave us a good idea of who would be starting where, running with which unit. Um, so that was great to see. And then once we saw that up-tempo, they went back to the drills, which if you go to every fall camp, those drills, you'll start doing them yourselves by the end of it because you see it so many times. <laughs> you just met, you just It's the same thing every time. So that uh, obviously, well, it's better we can see that than not seeing anything at all. True. Um, so that was good. But, yeah, and then we went back up, came back down for interviews. And um, it, it was, I think, a... A practice, and they have another one tomorrow at the Coliseum, which is the last one that we'll be able to see from them at the Coliseum. The rest will be at the practice field. I like being in the Cali, so whenever I could be there, it's a great time. I mean, you just you can feel the vibes around it when when things are going well, and just when you hear those pads popping and stuff in the Coliseum, it gives you kind of that feel like you know you, you think about all those players that have played there before, all the history and whatnot is there. You know, at least that that's usually my. Uh, you know, recollection of being in the Coliseum. I wasn't there last night, but that's usually when you get in there, especially that first time. You're just like, oh yeah, I remember this place. It's been a minute since I, I, I've been around you. Uh, so you, you know, it, it's interesting to get in the Coliseum. It's interesting that they're 
you know, ha- I think they had three straight practices or maybe four straight practices in the Coliseum. So kind of mixing it up and doing things again differently. You know, Clay Helton was all about doing things the same way over and over and over so that the players would be in a routine, so they would be ready for that. Whereas Lincoln Riley, it seems like, wants to shake things up and keep guys on their toes. And this is something that we called for on the Family Feud podcast multiple times of when things aren't going right, at least shake it up. Because to, to be able to reach and keep the focus and attention of players at that age, I think you have to mix things up uh, you know, a lot. And you know, you can things can get stale really quickly, and especially – the third week of fall camp, and then maybe the the you know two thirds of the way through the season, when you've had all the you know you had your bumps and bruises, and you kind of beat up a little bit, you need to be able to mix it up. But they're starting straight out the bat. You know they're not, they're going to keep these players on their toes, and that's kind of interesting. I wanted to go back to what you mentioned about Brett and Elon and the up downs, and that is one way where you can quickly unite a team or you can quickly divide a team. I think it says a lot about this group and how much everyone is bought in. And I think it's because, at least the returning players, they don't want to go through something like they did last year. Because you know, when you have to do up-downs, for everyone on the team has to do up-downs because someone else made a mistake, you can get angry at that person really quickly. And that anger can turn into, hey, I'm going to you know, I'm gonna be on you so that you're, you're doing the right thing. Or it becomes divisive. Hey, this guy's always messing up. He's, we're always having to do stuff because of him. And then you start having factions in the locker room, all those type of things. But I think because... You know, I think everyone wants to do better that are returning players and the guys that transferred in because, you know, everyone is kind of seeing the blueprint that Lincoln Riley has and what could be with this team. And there's there's just so much more talent on this team than there was last year, just consistently across the board and the depth that they've added. So, you know, I feel like seeing people buy in and just that kind of that short story that he told there of how it went from 200 and kind of dwindled down shows you people buying in and Everyone holding everybody accountable. Accountability has been one of the biggest words we've heard in the in the Pac-12 media day, in the USC media day, and the interviews that have happened the first couple of practices. Everyone talks about the accountability, and I think that is huge because that's something that has been mis- missing from USC is being able to create that culture, and it starts with accountability. So you know, I, I give props to this coaching staff. They've come in and done the right thing so far. Now. Once you take that first knock and you fall down two scores or you lose a game or something, how then does everyone react? Is it, oh, I thought this was going to be different and suddenly it's the same old thing and I, I'm not going to buy in anymore? Or you know, do they bounce back from it and you know, tr- show some, some, some flexibility and some ability to rebound from a, from a poor situation, whether it be a play, whether it be a series, a drive, a quarter, whatever it may be? So we, we won't find those things out until – at least September, maybe not even until after, depending on you know how that first slate of four games goes for them. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Um, any thoughts from you, just on you know looking at the practice, the accountability, the culture, and you know those topics that just seem to keep coming up over and over with this with this team? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think everyone first is bought in. There's not one player who's hiding away from it. Everyone is committed to really changing the culture and having accountability. And you talked about how previous players would, you know, they, they want to make a change. Brent Nealon said the same thing. He said the guys that have been here, they want to win. And, and they've been, some, been through some rough patches, some rough seasons. They want to change that. Um, and they've really been committed to, to doing that. Um, they've been putting in the extra work. Shane Lee at Pac-12 Media Day, he said that players that are from previous seasons at USC – they came up to him and said, hey, we never worked this hard before in the weight room. We never took those extra reps. And Brett Nealon said the same thing. I mean, he's been around 
was it five years? And he said, this summer, I was definitely in the building and the facilities a lot more than in the past. That just says so much already about what Lincoln Riley and his staff and obviously Benny Wiley, what he's building within the strength room and the weight room. That's just a real testament to what they've been doing. And you're kind of seeing it, I think, on the practice field already. The intensity, the care to each and every drill, I think, is already super high. Um, and players are just bought in. Everyone is excited. Everyone is just ready to change that narrative. And that was one thing that, that Brent Nillen said. He just wants to win. And that's what people are excited about. They're tired of losing. They're tired of having that that build of USC having the bad rep. I think Raylan Goforth also kind of mentioned something similar. How when he grew up, he was an SC fan and he came and he played. And obviously, they've had some bad seasons while he's been playing. And he just wants to change that. He wants to see the Coliseum full again. I think that's a common notion from the coaching staff to the bottom players that they just want to win. I mean, it's something that can unite a team, and, and we've seen it already. And it's interesting, uh, Raylan Goforth, talking about growing up a USC fan when his brother went to UCLA at yeah. one point. So I'm sure there was a little bit of a UCLA fandom in there for a couple of years. Uh, but Brett Nealon, I talked with him, and uh, if, if some of you guys are listening, remember Chris and Keeley had a you know a really good interview with him, a sit down. I believe it was in the spring, uh, maybe a little bit, a little bit or before. It must have been before that, but uh, maybe it was last summer. Talking about his you know during the pandemic, he got into you know sports cards and stuff, and you know collecting sports cards and doing different things. So I asked him, you know, just get, get an update from him during the media day, and he's like, oh, I haven't really you know I haven't really been to any card shows or anything in a couple months. And I was like, oh, you know, what's going on? He's like, yeah, I'm just football, just super focused wow. right yeah. now. And I think that just kind of, you know, guys are putting their hobbies aside. They're putting those things. Hopefully everyone takes care of the schoolwork when we get to September. However, right now, everyone is, is so focused and bought in. And I think that just tells you everything is moving in the right direction there. Now, speaking of Brett Nealon, he was one of the guys in our top five, in our 30 most important, our top six, I think he was, somewhere in there. Um, but wanted to talk about our 30 most important list. You contributed to this. We yeah. got you, we got yours, Ryan's, Gerard's, RJ's, and then mine and Chris. We all did our own individual list, one through 35. So we get a little bit extra room to add some guys in there if we needed to. Um, and then Chris and I kind of compiled them, looked at some of the you know the the averages, and then moved some guys around a little bit based on what we thought. But I wanted to take a look at your list. And ask you about a couple of them because you yes, had some a, a couple guys that are a little bit of outliers. Now, and one of them that stood out to me was Bobby Haskins. Yeah. Now, Bobby Haskins, we had him at number 11. We had all six of the the guys we expect to be in the offensive line rotation in the top 11. Now, Chris and I did this, and we'll, we'll probably discuss it at a later date a little bit more. But the main reason is because we don't know what we're going to get from seven, eight, nine, beyond. So if there's injuries, we think USC could be in a lot of trouble. Now I will say, now we started this list, we compiled it, this is all over a month ago. I will say there's been a lot of positive mention of Mason Murphy in particular. And he's a guy that I thought had a lot of talent, but because he didn't play last year, because he got injured last year, I didn't know where he was going to be at coming this fall, but hearing a lot of good things about him and that Gino Quinones has really taken a step forward as a potential interior guy as a backup. And he's you know practiced at center some before, so he could play that. He could play guard as well. So maybe they weren't as important as we think, but we'll see as the season progresses. But you had Bobby Haskins not even in your top 30, but in your top 35, one of your last guys. So why did Bobby Haskins, you know, why was he so far down the list for you? Yeah, see, I was feeling a little crazy with this list, having him outside. <laughs> having him outside. Uh, I think you mentioned some great stuff about Mason Murphy and, and Gino. Yeah, they've they've been getting some praise on that old line. Um, so if they're 
if there comes a chance. I think that interior O-line is really set in stone. I don't think anyone's going to really come in the way of Andrew Voorhees, Brett Nealon, Justin Dietrich. I think they're, they're primarily locks, really the outside uh, tackles, um, who I think are still up for grabs. Um, really, I put – so I put Corin Ford and I put uh, Joel Amonheim in, in front of him. And then my list was really heavy on – just position players outside of the line. Um, I had Bobby Haskins at 33, so not even in my my top 30. Uh, my last uh, lineman was actually at 17. Uh, so the rest were just basically position players. And I thought that's really the group that's going to be there. I trust those those players. Um, I had Joan Amon and Colin Ford, um, and then Justin Dietrich, Brent Nealon, and Andrew Voorhees. I had those five in the top 20, and then I didn't have another lineman until uh, Bobby Haskins. So I thought... Those five were going to be the solidified players. And then the rest, I thought, were more important really in the position players, linebackers, defensive linemen. Um, I threw some receivers in there as well. I think that's really because Bobby Haskins, we haven't really seen him yet. We Mm kind of really didn't see him in the spring. Um, He was hurt. So I really just didn't know what to think uh, about him. I think now, you know, he and he said uh, yesterday that he's not being handed a spot. A starting spot there's some competition there so i think maybe when we look mid way through the season maybe he'll be in the top 10 um but we i just really didn't know what to think about him that's why i had him kind of outside there i think looking back i probably should have had him in the top 30 maybe in the 20s um maybe even where you guys had him but that's really what i saw i mean i just didn't really know what to think about him at that time Hey, don't back off your list now just because oh, you no. saw where some of us had it. I still have them. At, no, I still stand by what I have. Uh, I just think when I was making it, I just really didn't know what to think because we hadn't seen him play. Obviously, he's had that experience, and I think the front five that they have right now um, is more solidified, and they've played together. And Brent Nealon talked about that too, how the interior three has been together for so long. You can't fake that. So to add him into the tackle position, I think, and obviously Jonah and Colin have been there too, so kind of have to see how that plays out. You mentioned, you know, didn't know where to put somebody. What do I make of this player? And I think that that was one of the big struggles with list, this list for me yeah. and also Chris when we were, you know, kind of compiling and move guys around because there's so many new faces oh, on yeah. this team. And there's so many guys that are, that are maybe, you know, maybe play nickelback or may play cornerback or may play state. Like Latrell McCutcheon, I had a really tough time with him because I could see him starting – at a couple different positions, but I don't know if he's going to be the starter. Yeah. So if he's not a starter, obviously he's not going to be as important, though his versatility makes him a little bit more important because you know he can back up a different spot or he can start in a couple different places. But who's someone else on your list that you had some struggles with? Like, where do I put this guy? Do I put him up higher? Do I put him lower? Where do I kind of figure out where this guy is going to fit in this team? And like I said, there were a lot of guys that, that I kind of you know went back and forth on because you know there's just so many unknowns with this team. Yeah, I mean, I definitely did struggle with, I think Corey Foreman was another I struggled mm-hmm. with. I just really, because his potential is so high, and if he plays to his potential, he can be a you know a top three, top five player. I had him at number nine. I just thought, look, defensive line is they're a little bit thin at that position you've got Thule and then you really don't know where you can get the rest of your uh your production from so if he's able to reach his potential he'd be a top five type player on this team so I really wasn't sure what to do with him um there were obviously some other receivers notably the transfer ones Terrell Bynum wasn't sure what do I do with him Brendan Rice as well obviously when you throw in Jordan Addison that just goes straight top Mm -hmm. top near the top of your list 
Um, so I think those were two I struggled. I was very close at putting Alex Stathouse, you know, way up in my list. Very, I had him at 35, but I was very close. Stathouse was a guy that got, you know, varying opinions and also on our message board after, you know, people commenting on it had some varied opinions there, which it's just tough when you, you know, a kicker. Now he does have some experience, and this is the reason why I put him up a little bit higher is, hey, he's got some experience. You know, if you're if you're scoring points or you're driving the ball and like we think this offense is capable of, occasionally you're going to get stalled out in the red yeah. zone. Um, and you're going to have to kick field goals. And he's shown that he is capable of doing that with the experience he's done before. So I think I think he's valuable there. He could also be a kickoff guy if you need him to. Um, and just the fact that no one else on the roster has any experience at all, any game experience. So I thought he w- he was valuable. And you know we had to, that was one that you know had some varied opinions on for sure. And you said Foreman, you had him as you were the highest one on him at number nine. And you also had Latrell McCutcheon at ten, and yep. that was the highest on him. Um, while you didn't have Eric Gentry ranked, and everyone else did. Oh, I, I might have, I might have forgot about him. I could be, be a possibility because he's new, the new guy coming in, obviously in the summer. But you know, I, I struggle with Eric Gentry myself because one, we were told he's probably playing middle linebacker. Okay, how's that going to look for a six six guy? Oh yeah. Um, and when he played edge at Arizona State, was a freshman All American there. So you know, he was a guy I think I really struggled with trying to figure out where do I put this guy. Is he a starter at middle linebacker? Or we saw Raylan Goforth really take a jump forward, I thought, in the yeah. spring. So I think he's has the potential to be a starter, and he's probably in the front because Gentry wasn't here in the spring. And obviously Shane Lee, we think if he is healthy, he is going to be a starter. So then where does Gentry fit in? So he was one of the guys I think I really struggled with was figuring out where does Eric Gentry fit in mm-hmm. this team and how important will he be? I think right now you look at him and you go, I don't know exactly what they're going to get from him, but whatever they get is going to be a bonus. And seeing the athleticism, seeing the, the size, and if he can continue to put on some weight, he could be a monster down the line. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's listed at 6'6", 200. Um, he's definitely got to put on some weight. But, yeah, I mean, he's he's just a freak athlete if you're able to put him out because – and you, you make a great point about the rush. Where do you play him? Inside linebacker, you play him at rush. Where does he fit in this scheme? So that's really – I mean – Looking back, obviously I forgot to put him, but I would have. I think I probably would have struggled with that as well. That's our thirty uh, most important. If you guys haven't checked it out, we just finished the the uh, countdown, and obviously number one was Caleb Williams, yep. the starting quarterback. Everyone had Caleb Williams at number one, except for RJ. Oh, really? and we're gonna get RJ on at a later date to discuss his decision not to put Caleb Williams at number one. Uh, he had Tuli Tuli Pelotu up there, which is not a not a yeah. bad pick. Um, the lowest Tuli Tuli Pelotu was on the list was both me and you we both had him at number four yeah um and i could see him being anywhere from one to four i put him below because just because the linebacker play has struggled in the past the past couple years i thought shane lee's value as a defender he was my highest rated defender i believe you had the same there same so you know we'll see how it shakes up chris and i are planning to reorganize this list at the end of fall camp to kind of update it and see based on the position battles based on what we know a little bit more about some of these newcomers in particular, because one guy like Relique Brown, I put him on my list, and I think I may have been the only one, but I think he's got a guy that could be an immediate impact guy, and we'll see what we kind of hear from Camp. We've heard a lot mm-hmm. of positive things about him already, about him being a freak um, and just being just an unreal athlete, but we'll see if that translates. Or, you know, sometimes you see freshmen pop early, 
in a fall camp and then suddenly you know they fall off a little bit as the grind gets going and as there's more install and you know dealing with not only just what can you do with the ball in your hands as a freshman running back but what what can you do when that blitz comes can you pick up the blitz and those different things so we'll see if someone like Relique Brown makes a jump or someone like Rajon Davis makes a jump someone like Cooper Lovelace the the yeah. Juco offensive lineman he got only one person put him on their list, and you, you know I didn't put him on there because I don't think a guy that's coming in is going to be able to jump in and be a part of that immediate too deep and be a guy that they can trust. But we'll see. We'll see mm-hmm. where he's at later in, in camp, and we'll see you know how these kind of shake out. It'll be interesting when we try to reevaluate it and see where some guys are at, and you know who can make some jumps, and we'll try to point out who makes the jumps and who slides a little bit when we do reorganize that. I just had one more thing. I also had a Damani Jackson on my list. Um, and really my mindset, I think I had him pretty high up as well. Oh no, 27, not too bad. But, you know, I thought his potential is also super high. Um, and if he's able to contribute at, at that position, which really struggled last year, um, I think defensive back is, is much deeper than it is and than it was last season, but I think he can really emerge. And obviously he's a freshman. We didn't see him in the spring at all because uh, he was hurt, and I think he's really slowly working his way back in. Um, I think he might be fully practicing now. Um, so that was another player I think. I don't know if anyone else added him, but that was one I, I thought would be important. That's interesting. You were the only one to list him. Got it. And now if I was doing the list after media day, I probably would have included him. You there know, you go. Knowing that he's fully healthy and the fact that just some of the comments, and that's what's interesting about that media day is not only getting to know some of the players themselves, but one of the questions I asked everyone was, Who's made the biggest jump? And there were some interesting answers to that, I thought. And one of the guys I want to point out was Sierra Wright. I had multiple guys say that he, you know, multiple defensive backs say he's really made a big jump in one maturity, but also, you know, just what he's doing on the field as well. So we'll see if a guy that, you know, played a couple games early in the season and then was out the rest of the season, you know, couldn't get any action. If he makes, you know, he jumps into the mix there at that cornerback position because we we feel pretty confident that Makai Blackman is going to get one of those spots. The other spot, though, wide open right yeah. now. And Damani Jackson could be in there. Sierra Wright could be in there. Joshua Jackson could be in there. Anybody else named Jackson might get in there, too. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. We'll take a quick pause right here. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back and answer some of your questions. Anthony is going to stay with us, and we're going to answer some of the questions you guys put on Twitter as well as on the Peristyle. <laughs> Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All 
welcome back, guys. Anthony, I hope your break was delightful. Yeah. I had a, had a wonderful time. Went to the sauna, had a good workout. Now we're back, though, talking a little USC. We're going to answer your guys' questions. We're going to start on Twitter. We got a question from Andy uh, who asked, can you discuss Gary Bryant Jr.? Any updates on him? He's been one of my top guys for the 2022 season, and I really haven't seen or heard much on him lately. Thanks. One of the big updates from yesterday's practice, from Monday's practice, was that Gary Bryant Jr. not fully dressed and was with the rehab guys. Now, afterwards, Lincoln Riley was asked about some of the guys that were out, and Jude Wolf was actually in a boot. But it yeah. sounded Lincoln Riley made it sound like Jude Wolf was probably the only one that's more serious. The other guys probably, you know, maybe back in a couple of days. Is that, that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he said about Jude Wolf, it's a foot issue, and we're gonna we're gonna look at tests, and hopefully, it's nothing bad. And 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 you wasn't a big boot. It wasn't anything small. I don't know if a boot can be small, but <laughs> yeah, he looked hurt. And Gary Bryant was also not practicing. He was with a couple, actually, a couple players that weren't practicing. Latrell McCutcheon. Jalen Smith, Bryson Shaw, they weren't dressed. Shane Lee was dressed. He left practice, and he I guess he didn't practice as well because we didn't see him doing any individual drills or anything. But he mentioned, um, or Lincoln Riley said, everyone was just nicks and bruises. Corey Foreman also didn't practice, but that was a uh, prior obligation. So, yeah, those are some small injury updates from that. This this will be the interesting thing because of how the intensity that they're going with. I mean, they went two and a half hours the first day, and just watching the the highlights from those you know those opening stretch periods and just how quickly they were going from rep to rep, I thought yeah. really stood out to me. So a lot of intensity going right now. How is that going to affect them and when they start to get some of those bangs and bruises? Are there going to be guys out there that are out for lengthy amounts of times? Hopefully, you keep everyone healthy. We've seen in the past where USC would have 30 guys on Rehab Island or not oh, dressed yeah. for games. So, you know, you're hoping that USC can avoid that. And the Trojans, you know, we always want to see guys healthy and play to their full potential. That's all we kind of ask and hope for the players, uh, each and each and every one of them. But injuries are a part of football, and that's why depth is so important. So it's interesting, you know, depth is something we're going to talk about as we answer some of these questions. But just seeing the team out there, seeing the team at media day, just all the bodies coming in. Obviously, there's more guys walking by and stuff, and you're like, oh, yeah, that guy and that guy and that guy. And one of the things that Chris and Ryan mentioned when we were doing tunnel vision is you look at some of the position groups, and suddenly they're not two and three, you know, they're not two and three guys in a position group at times, which was the case in the spring. Um, it just seems like every position is now two or three deep rather than, hey, we may have two or three healthy guys at one yeah. point. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the biggest difference that I've noticed just in terms of the depth, whereas last season there were some positions where you really, if a body fell, where do you go? Um, obviously, the quarterback was a big one as the season went yep. on. We, we really had Caden Slovis obviously went down, then he was Jackson Dart, then Jackson Dart went down, and now you have Miller Moss, and where do you go from there? I mean, is the punter going to start throwing? So their depth, I think, is is much better at really a, almost all positions. Um, I've, I think that's just a testament to the transfer portal, to Lincoln Riley. I think players also were willing to stay um, and really go through this quote-unquote rebuild of, of the program. Um, so that's one thing I've really noticed. But do you want to go back really to Gary Bryant real quick? Um, I think he's really been the forgotten player um, mm -hmm. among this wide receiver core. Obviously, everyone's going to talk about the transfers. They're really going to stand out. Uh, people forget Gary Bryant. He was third in receiving last year for USC, obviously behind Drake London and Taj Washington. He's a big play downfield threat. Um, I am really want to see how he's going to work alongside 
Jordan Addison, Mario Williams, and then you're going to throw in probably Brendan Rice. Terrell Bynum will get some love. Um, Taj Washington is also there. Kyle Ford. Kyle Ford. So many names in that room. Um, and if you have stock on him, I might be a little worried just because how many snaps is he going to really have? How much playing time is he going to get? Because this room is so loaded. And I think the good thing on for him is that no one is coming in with, oh, they've worked prior knowledge with Lincoln's offense. Obviously, Mario Williams is the only one. Everyone has fresh eyes to work with. So he can kind of prove himself through fall camp, through the reps, the extra work, and build some rapport with Caleb and really prove himself. Um, we haven't really seen much from him. Um, he didn't really talk at media day. Um, or did he? It might have been. No, so he didn't. Um, so we really haven't heard anything. And obviously he didn't practice uh, Monday night. So that's one player that's kind of a little bit mysterious. But he's still a great talent. Didn't practice much in the spring either he was limited yeah. at times during the spring so he's a guy that has to prove himself i mean like you said everyone's kind of coming in on the, this flat level of you know everyone's an outsider except for mario williams who has that experience from last year but you got to go out there and prove yourself jordan mm-hmm. addison is, is showing what he can do and we've hearing about his work ethic and everything else but your best of best ability is your availability yep. And Gary Bryant has to be healthy so that he can show what he can do. So, you know, he's going to be forgotten if he can't get healthy and stay on the or can't stay healthy and get out on the field and make some plays. So we'll see how that progresses. You mentioned the forgotten player. I think it's Taj Washington. Yes. You know, second leading receiver. And I heard he had a monster sprint, uh, summer, you know, in the PRPs and stuff. I had someone tell me, he said, this guy, you got to watch out for him because everyone's talking about everyone else. But he's a guy that made a ton of plays in that. And we'll see how he's used differently. Um, I think he could be used a, a, a little bit better than he was last year. I don't think throwing the deep ball one-on-one is the best thing for yeah. him. I want to see, and this was the same thing I said with Gary Bryant, both those guys have speed and quicks. I want to see them making some cuts, you know, throw that deep post so then they can flatten the route and go get it if they need to. They can change their angle on it rather than it just being a straight one-on-one jump ball. And that's not going to be ideal for either one of those guys, probably not ideal for Jordan Addison or Mario Williams. Those are smaller guys. Use their Use their body types. If it's if you want the jump ball, that's the that's the Drake London ball, that's the Kyle Ford ball, that's the Brendan Rice ball. Use those big bodies for that, and then use those smaller bodies moving a little bit more, so you get one cut and you know make somebody change change their direction to keep up with them, make them flip their hips, do those type of things. So we'll see how they're used differently. Everyone from media day and from the interviews recently are just raving about the Lincoln Riley offense, and we'll see what it looks like when they get on Saturday. And then a lot of Oklahoma fans said, "Well, that offense wasn't that good this year." We'll see, uh, you know, if USC's offense takes a step up from where Oklahoma was last year. Just to add one quick thing about Gary Bryan, he also had seven touchdowns last year. That's the, that was the most on the team. So the statistics show that he can be productive, and this offense will be much more creative than last year's. So. I'm I'm with you though. I really want to see how him and Taj Washington will just look, how they'll be used. Please no more island shots to Taj Washington. If I see that one more time, I'm I'm leaving. I'm leaving the press box. <laughs> no way I can see that again. Obviously a ton of weapons, so that's why you gotta be out in the practice field. You gotta prove yourself there. Uh Andrew wanted to want to know any rumblings you guys are hearing about strong practice performers so far. And, you know, I think already we're hearing a, a couple of guys. Um, I, I think Josh Follow, the, the catch that they showed on the you know the yeah. social media clip, the one-handed grab, and he talked about it yesterday. I don't know if you were in that interview, but talked about how he feels like he is forgotten, and he wants to like he said. I think there's people people don't re- don't even remember that I'm on the team, 
And so he wants to go out there and prove himself. And, and I think that that's an interesting thing because, you know, Josh Follow has all the ability. He can block. He can catch. Can he stay healthy? Can he stay in the playbook? Can he do everything off the field? And that's one of the things he mentioned, that Lincoln Riley, if you do everything that you're supposed to do, and he meant everything off the field academically, uh, uh, you know, away from the locker room, and you're a baller, then Lincoln Riley's going to get you the ball. Josh Follow is a baller. If you've seen him in practices before, if you saw him as a freshman, or even if you saw him in high school, he's a baller. Now, can he take care of all those other things so that Lincoln Riley says, I need to get that guy the ball? Another baller in a similar fashion. Now, I, don't, I haven't seen him necessarily, you know, how many plays he's made so far in camp. Because, again, you know, it's been one day of real pads. So, you know, how much are you, do you really find out? We've seen a couple of highlights and, you know, a couple guys saying, and, but guys are more talking about what was happening in the summer a lot. And Kalen Bullock is a name that came up a ton. But another guy making plays in the summer was Malcolm Epps. Yeah. And I thought a really interesting nugget, you know, because how do you kind of measure strength and conditioning? You know, you look at guys, you say, that guy looks bigger. And yeah, they, you know, but how do you measure it? Well, they're working on getting guys stronger. And we don't, you know, we don't see their maxes. We don't see what they're repping out, you know, in the in the bench press. But we can see the speed difference. And when we're presented numbers and, you know, uh, I was talking with Zach Hansen and asked him about Malcolm Epps. He, or, you know, he would talk to him about Malcolm Epps. And he said he runs almost 22 miles an hour. That's insane. There's only a couple of players on USC's team that are in the 22-mile-an-hour club, uh, and maybe Jordan Addison's in the 23-mile-an-hour club. Caleb Williams said that he was 23. I'm not sure if that's uh, official or not, uh, but there's a couple of players in the 22 club. Malcolm Epps is almost there, he told me. But he said that he used to get excited when he ran 20 miles an hour, when the data from the catapult system and everything, the, the GPS tracking they have, when it would say that he was running 20 miles an hour, he would get excited. Man, it's good. Good, I'm having a good day. He said now he's mad if, he, if he's running 20 because he has gained a mile an hour somewhere there, almost two miles an hour from what he was you know, normally running in last year, and he credited all to Benny Wiley and the strength and conditioning staff and what they're doing to create that explosiveness. So now if he can catch the ball at six foot six as a target, and one of the other things that he mentioned is the tight ends now with the offense, Lincoln Riley's going to get them matched up against linebackers instead of being against a safety or a nickel all the time because they were split out so much last year. And But that's going to come back to, hey, you got to block first, and that's one of the things Zach Hansen's told them. But I think that's a guy to keep an eye on, that he could be a big-time playmaker as well. And, again, goes back to Josh Follow's comment, you take care of everything and you're a baller, Lincoln Riley's going to find a way to get you the ball. So, And he's proven that. That's that's one of the interesting things. And I think that gives gives new life to the tight end position in particular just because they were so forgotten in the offense because Drake London had come in and been that inside receiver a few years ago. And, you know, we saw flashes of it, Michael Trigg and Lake McCree at times. But that position as on the regular just hasn't been a productive position. And one of the things Zach Hansen has said is you guys got to fight every day to prove yourselves and prove that you're a valuable asset so we can get on the field as a tight end group because look at that wide receiver room and all the talent that's over there. So I think that the tight ends are a group that I'm definitely keeping an eye on. How about you? Anybody else that, that you know, you've heard already that's getting that's producing some strong practice performances. Yeah, we, so we've talked about it uh, already just a little bit. Relique Brown has been a name that's been very common. Um, Kiel, Kiel McDonald really said that he's just been outstanding in the way we can use him on the field and how we, he can line up in different places and his speed. So he's been a, he's been a popular name. 
Uh, you talked about Kalen Bullock. Malcolm Epps had a funny quote yesterday. They used to call him Sticks, and they say now nah, he's gone. He's gone bigger. They call him Double Sticks <laughs> because of the weight that he's put on. So he's another player that's really gained steam. Obviously, Jordan Addison is another one. Um, I've heard great stuff about Travis Dye. Uh, people said that he's just been great running the ball, and he's really helped. Um, Travis Dye and Austin Jones have really took Relique Brown under their wing and kind of showed him the ropes and how to just be a college running back and some of those tips to success. I've also heard uh, Solomon, um, who I, you told me how to Truly s- Alapupu. There you go. I will not try to pronounce it, but he actually had a great spin move yesterday on pra- at practice uh, against Malcolm Epps that Malcolm was kind of caught off guard. Um, so that's another player. Um, really, we haven't seen much, so those are the two ones that I know. I want to really go back to the tight end group, though. Malcolm Epps yesterday said that that tight end group is, he believes, the best in the country. Um, and look, they might not be the best in the country, but they're really they're really stacked. I think at that position, and I'm you know last year Eric Cromenhoek, he he was the highest, or he had the most receptions to tight end last season at 15. Um, that is not a lot. So you want to see how will they be used this year in this offense? Um, you've obviously got Malcolm, you've got Jude Wolf, Lake McCree, who really started to play great as the season went on. Josh Fowler, will he? How will he be used? Will he be used? Will he be healthy? There's some questions about that room, but I think there's a lot of potential and some untapped players that could be used. And you mentioned a lot. They're not going to be lining up against nickels or safeties. More so closer to the linemen. Um, I think that's a better better spot for, for most of these players. So I really have, uh, like I said, Travis Dye, Austin Jones, those are really the ones that have stood out. Um, we haven't really heard them. I think Corey Foreman uh, had a good first practice as well. Um, so... These are some players that really we haven't seen much. Obviously, it's the first couple of days, but those are the ones that I've really kind of heard a lot about. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't get to see the actual competition ourselves. We're kind of hearing from people and, you know, checking in on, hey, who's standing out to you? You know, who's making some plays type of thing? Makai Blackman was a guy who made a ton oh, of yeah. plays in the spring. And I, I think it was Malcolm Epps said, you know, had some positive words about him as well. He's a guy that I'm looking forward to. I had a, you know, I, like I said, I had a great chat with him at Media Day. And one of the things he said that he's really tried to work on this offseason – and that he wants to prove to scouts is that I can go get the ball. You know, I can mm-hmm. get the ball back for the offense. So, you know, he's really focused on creating those turnovers, whether it be interceptions, whether it be punching the ball out type of thing. So he's a guy I'm definitely keeping an eye on as well. Imagineery asked, going position by position, and we're not going to take too long on this, which USC football positions are we better, and referring to USC, which are USC better at starter, depth, et cetera, at this year versus last year, which are not as solid at this time last year. I mean, when you're going through it, it's hard to find a position that is not better this season. I mean, yeah. the there are a couple that I can think that you can make the argument. I would look at quarterback because of the depth. You have you know a multi-year starter in Keaton Slovis last year coming in, Heisman contender going into the season, and you have two highly touted freshmen in Jackson Dart and Miller Moss, and you saw what Jackson Dart was capable of doing. Whereas this year, your third-string guy is a bounce back from BYU, unproven at Jake Jensen, and Caleb Williams has no has minimal experience, has a little bit of experience. Let's not say minimal, a little bit of experience last year and showed some some big time flashes. Got to show that consistency this year. And Miller Moss has played you know a couple of drives, so I think you could argue, you could make that argument. I don't. I would say that Caleb Williams in this offense I think is a better fit, and I think the quarterbacks will perform better than last year just because of the offense. But you can make that argument. The only other position group I can think of off the top of my head 
that I think you would make that argument for is you know, maybe the running backs. You know, with Keontae Ingram, uh, you know, being in the front, you know, having I think just think there's a little bit more depth there last year. Uh, maybe you make the argument there. I, is there a position group that you are thinking of that that is standing out? Maybe the offensive line as far as depth, but you have the same players and you think they're going to take a step forward outside of Jalen McKenzie and Liam Jimmins. You did have two guy, two older guys there, but you've added more depth this year. So I think that 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 one's a hard one. I don't know what what's your thoughts on on uh, you know going into the season what with the position by position groups. Yeah, I think this is a this is an interesting question. Um, I think the quarterback, you made an interesting point there. I think Caleb Williams, look, he's played what? How many games? Five, seven, around that? Kind of half of a season. Yeah, almost half when you compare it to last year with Keen Slovis, more experience, and then those two freshmen obviously behind him. I think that's interesting. Um, obviously, the first one that came to my head was punter because they're really Good struggling point. Good point. to find a punter. Uh, <laughs> they had Ben Griffiths, who was a Pac-12 honorable mention and obviously a, a you know, more experience and what they have at that position now. I think in terms of running back, last year what they had, obviously, Vavai and uh, Darwin Barlow. Then they had Keontae and then kind of the same, Brandon Outlaw, Matt Colombo, compared to now where you still have Darwin Barlow. Then you add Austin Jones, Travis Dyer, Relique Brown. I think right now they're at a – it's a better position group, but it's not really that far off. Um, I think you make the argument. Yeah, I don't know that I would – and I think you potentially go either way because Keontae, I think, is you know was already a guy that had proven himself and been a starter at, at uh, you know at Texas as well as Travis Dye being a starter. And I think they're going to be used in different ways, yeah. which I think you know. I, I, and the fact that you mentioned it earlier about Travis Dye and Austin Jones taking Relique Brown under their wing, I think that is just a perfect fit for oh, Relique yeah. Brown. I think that's going to increase his chances of being a Heisman contender in, in a year or two years. Because of the knowledge he's going to gain from those two guys, because not now, granted he he plays does different things. He's going to be using the slides, going to do some different things. But that they catch the ball in the backfield so much, and those guys are good receivers, and they you know they know what they have to do as far as pass blocking stuff. If they coach him up, I think that that's going to just accelerate his uh, you know his immediate impact ability. So that that one's an interesting one. Um, on the defensive side, do you feel more confident with any? I mean, do you feel like any group you could even make the argument for? That that's worse? No, that's or, better this oh, season. That's better. You know that I think it's just so many question marks with the group because they've brought the names in, they brought the transfers, we just haven't seen them play together. Um I think I think linebackers maybe one that stands out, just Shane Lee and, and obviously Eric Gentry we talked about. Um I mean that's a tough one. Safety might be better. I mean defensive I mean, line. I, th- I, I, I think know. you're thinking, looking at it. You go, there's just more depth. I think that's the biggest thing yeah, that stands yeah, out. The one position that that maybe last year had an advantage on, and this is going into the season, we're going to go with the same time frame, is the the secondary, because you had all those guys with experience last year, yeah. whereas this year it's a little bit of unknowns. And last year you had an you know, you had Kalen Bullock, and you say, oh that guy can eventually become somebody, and we saw some flashes. We think he's going to be a star, whether it's right now or you know in six months or in you know next year. It's going to happen. But you were coming in the season with three veteran safeties. Um, you, you know, you had two cornerbacks that are now both in you know NFL camps and stuff. So I think the secondary is one where you know I think there's some more there's some pause there as to whether last year's starting group was uh, was better. 
at this time last year. Now, they didn't perform the way, the way they should have last year, but uh, there is definitely more depth. So, you know, they could sustain if someone wasn't playing well, like happened at times last year, they could, you know, flip somebody else in there and say, you know, if you don't step your game up, you're going to be on the bench. That was something that I don't think they necessarily could have done last year. But we're going to leave it at that. We've got plenty of questions here. We're going to try to get through some more um, before we run out of time here and i got to go catch my flight. But Super Trojan asks, what are your thoughts on the defensive line depth? We've talked a little bit about depth, but what about on the defensive line? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good question. Um, obviously, the first thing that stands out is is Thule. Um I think everyone's ready for him to have a, a breakout season. I was ready for him to call this his money year. Now Drake Jackson called that his last year's money year. I was waiting for that. He didn't say anything, so <laughs> we might have to we might have to wait. Um, I think Tyrone Tuleni is is a great addition there. Obviously, we got to see Salmon Bird is there as well. Um, Brandon Peely is, is back, so that, that should be great. He actually has been getting some praise. Uh, someone, I think immediately they said he's a really good ball player, basketball player. Oh, yeah, he's a baller. So, I mean, you can't really bring that to the field, but that's a that's a good side to know. You can bring the athleticism. Yeah, that's what stands exactly. out about him. He's a, he's a big polar bear, you know, being from Alaska. Mm-hmm. But he's got to show the consistency. And he's a guy that I think really needs to take a step forward for this defense to take it to that next level because he has experience. You know, he's he's a big body. You can't move him around. If he can, you know, take that step forward in consistency, he takes that defensive line to another step, to another level. Because right now he's not with the starters. You know, Stanley Tafu has been the starter from the spring throughout. So he's got to beat somebody out. And a guy that, you know, maybe two years ago is looking at maybe leaving and being done with school if he doesn't get injured. Um, or if he has a, you know, t- going into 2020, he he was going into his fourth season. Now it's his sixth season, I believe, uh, yeah. going off the top of my head. But, you know, he could have been done if he has 2020 and, you know, plays the entire time. His eligibility could have been, if there wasn't, you know, the COVID, he could have been gone in 2020. And now he's here in 2022. How does he react to that? That'll be an interesting one. But, you know, he's a guy that I, I think the depth is definitely taking a step forward. And if he can show more consistency and make some plays, then that defensive line will be even better than you know most of us are probably anticipating that it could be. Yeah, he's he's coming off a torn Achilles and and yeah, this is his sixth year. And you said it, the depth. I think overall the on on the defensive side, really the team in general, the depth, I think that positions are, are much deeper. I know in the spring they were really looking for bodies at across all positions. I think that they they've done a good job with that for the most part. Um but yeah, there's a lot of depth. We just don't know what they're going to look like because we just haven't seen them play um, and how this will look in a different system and obviously just a different team with with the many transfers that have come. Jump into some questions that feature some other sports real quick. Dorsett asked, does the move to the Big Ten mean that USC will get a wrestling or hockey team? USC does have a hockey, a club hockey team. Um, That's not the question, though. I I think with USC already having 21 sports, you know, we're going to – Wait and see what happens with the move and the travel before USC goes. All right, we got to start adding some extra teams, or we want to add some extra teams to be more competitive. Obviously, a lot of people have talked about softball in the past, so we'll see. That that one's that's a down the road question. I don't think that you know just making the announcement USC is now ramping up the discussion of having a wrestling or hockey team right now. Super Trojan Five want to know any basketball recruiting update. What you got over there, Anthony? Yeah, so I will I will touch on basketball. So first, Isaiah Collier is really the main name. Um, he's a five-star a guard from from Georgia, and he has USC in his top four. Um, so it's USC, UCLA, Cincinnati, and Michigan, uh, which is good. I mean, this is a good good group to be a part of. Uh, obviously, UCLA, Michigan kind of 
Blue Buds of Basketball, Deep History, Cincinnati is also a great program. Um, his decision will be coming soon. I haven't really, he's completing a visit to Michigan. Um, that, that was actually in July, late July, and then he will probably make that decision now. It should be coming up soon, but in terms of uh, USC, he talked about how they're putting people in the draft, and Andy Enfield has talked about that multiple times, how that's a really good just selling point. They're putting people in the draft, and they're making sure that people are being productive with their time at USC. Um, their guard development has been great in recent years, so that's another key thing. Obviously, you started that with Jordan McLaughlin, then you kind of go through Kevin Porter. Also, Taj Yidi had a great uh, great run there, then obviously now Boogie Ellis is there, Drew Peterson, so they do a great job with guards, so he's one name um, to pay attention to. Uh, another one, obviously, London Johnson, um, who's another guard uh, from Georgia, um, a four-star. He He's more so leaning toward uh, Georgia Clemson, but We'll have to wait on that one as well. I mean, this is a kind of a little bit of early period for basketball. Um, there are a, yeah. a ton of commits going around, and Isaiah Collier is the very the the most notable one. Yes, obviously yes. he's not just a five star guy; he's a top ten guy, and he's the point guard USC has been missing. It seems like since Jordan McLaughlin, and mm-hmm. we had another question later about what do we kind of think of the point guard position, and we'll touch on that in just a second. But Collier is a huge one for USC yeah. to be in the mix is a positive, and the fact I think that there's no Southeast teams. So he is planning to leave home and go somewhere. And the fact he's looking at two L.A. schools, um, so you know that means he definitely likes the, the city of L.A. You know, I, I think that USC is right there in the mix. I haven't got any you know uh, deep intel on him uh, recently. But the fact that they're in the mix, that's a huge thing. That's a type of player they're lo- really looking for. A couple other guys that they're in the mix for. And it's interesting that USC and UCLA are both in it for Isaiah Collier because USC and UCLA haven't necessarily been recruiting the same guys a lot yeah. in the last couple of classes. But another guy who's now down to his final two, a local prospect, big man Devin Williams, who's 6'9", 6'10", guy who can play on the wing and do some different things from Centennial, has now cut his list down to USC and UCLA. So that'll be an interesting one. And that one, I've been told, is neck and neck. You know, No one knows exactly where he's going to go with that. A couple other guys that USC's in the mix for, seven-footer Isaiah Miranda, who actually I believe was, he's playing somewhere in the Northeast, uh, New Hampshire or Connecticut or Massachusetts, somewhere up there at, at one of the private academies, had made the move to the Southern California Academy where Vince Iwachuku Uwa, yes. uh, actually transferred to last season. So I think that's a positive development for USC, obviously, to have him in your backyard, to be able to visit more frequently rather than flying across the country. So another guy there that USC is in the mix for. So USC in the mix for some guys. They haven't picked up a commitment yet in the 2023 class. So you, know, you take a little bit of a pause and go, okay, how's that class going to develop? But you get one or two of these guys, you get an Isaiah Carrier and add one of those other pieces, and suddenly you feel a lot more confident with where this class could go. Um, and, you know, the those guys, just the guys over in the Galen Center, Andy Enfield, Chris Capco, Eric Mobley, just continue to work, continue to grind to put those guys, Jay Morris, um, and, and, you know, the reputation, like you said, of the draft is huge for USC. That's huge for Isaiah Miranda in particular as a seven-footer. What USC has done with the Mobley brothers, with Anyeka Okongwu, with even Nick Rakosevich. You know, those guys and how they developed when they got to USC and then also being in the draft. And obviously USC, you know, has had a draft pick the last what, five drafts, I believe now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they ended their streak of having a first-rounder with Isaiah Mobley going in the second round. But still, you know, producing a guy every single year, you know, is a, a really big thing, obviously. And that, that was... You know why they're in uh, in the recruitment for guys like Julian Phillips, who was a top fifteen guy, and why you're in the recruitment for an Isaiah Collier because 
how can you develop me? How can you get me to the NBA? You know, whether it's one year, two years, whatever it is down the road. So we'll see as those those uh, recruitments continue to progress. But those are a couple of names that USC is in on right now. Hope to try to get some more information. I've been trying to ask around. Haven't got as much, uh, you know, much much scoop recently as maybe will during basketball season. A little bit easier when you're around people and can talk to them face to face. Yeah, just to add one more thing. They were also uh, Mikey Williams, who's another very popular name. Uh, he visited with USC. Uh, I think might have been during the spring or a little bit before that. Um, he at times I thought he might have been in the mix, but it looks like he's going to go pro. Um, so that was one name that that I thought might might come back, but it doesn't look like it. Yeah, USC with Mikey Williams, they recruited him basically since he was an eighth grader. So yeah, um, you know, if if he does if he does go to college, USC will definitely be in the mix there. Jumping over to baseball, BND1, want to know any updates on baseball recruiting and in particular transfer additions. So I was just down at the area code games talking with baseball coaches around the, from around the country. Always fun for me getting to you know check in with a bunch of coaches, chat with them, pick their brains about different things from how they organize their recruiting boards to you know how they're dealing with the transfer portal, NIL, and all those type things. Uh, checking in with, on USC, you know they picked up. Connor Cliff, the, the catcher from Cal Baptist, they p- picked up Caden Aoki. They've now picked up Caden Aoki's brother. I believe it's Connor uh, Aoki, who is a catcher, fifth-year graduate transfer from Binghamton. He's going to come, both the Aoki brothers. Um, they also picked up Ryan Jackson from Nevada, who's a guy who it, it just just produces. He, he's a guy that you know hit was second team all Mountain West last year. You know, is a great has a solid glove. Doesn't wow you with anything, but if you watch him day after day, you go that guy is just constantly making plays and, and you know and doing everything right. So that's the type of guys that you're looking for as you're building a program. And then they had a pitcher, Miles Halligan, I believe it is from Xavier, committed. However, he flipped his commitment to Missouri State. Um, you had some struggles trying to get in with just the transfer credits and different things. So he decided to not go continue the process with USC and flipped his commitment to Missouri State. USC has also picked up a couple of uh, freshmen, incoming freshmen, late ads. And it's usually hard to pick up guys at this point in the process. But they picked up K.J. Harrison, who was a star at Oregon State. His little brother, uh, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but from Hawaii, he was a Texas A&M commit and uh, you know decommitted from them and then committed to USC. So that's a couple of names that are standing out right there. And one big addition, re-addition, bring back, I don't know how you want to phrase it, but Jaden Agassi, the son of Andre Agassi and Steffi Graff, who was one of USC's um, weekend starters is going to be returning was in the transfer portal but they got him back so I think that's a really big addition because of, of some of the guys that they have lost through the transfer portal so that's some baseball updates right there jumping back into football DK Trojan want to know I know it's early in camp any potential surprise contributors not necessarily guys that are making plays right now but any surprise contributors and I would say my the one guy that stands out to me will be Sierra Wright you know I mentioned him earlier in the show but just the the way that everyone talked about his maturity and that he's taken a big jump and you know how serious he is about it and you know how he's producing on the field as well so Sierra Wright's the, the first guy that came to mind yeah I think that's another that's an interesting question uh, I think Sierra yeah from what we've heard uh, he's had a great camp uh, just a great offseason as well um, I think I, I really do want to see how Tyrone Teleni fits into this defensive line I think like we kind of talked about earlier, they're kind of a little thin at that position. Um, and really Solomon is the other name that I think it should should really, I mean, I think Sean Nua said it, that even if Solomon plays, I just want to go hug him. Because I'm so, I just love him so much. And I'm so proud of him. 
Um, I think he's a he's an interesting person to keep an eye on. I think once he gets on that field, he might make some impactful plays. Um, that's one name that we've been hearing about. So I think I'll go with Solomon on that. I will take either defensive lineman named Solomon. I think yeah. Solomon Bird could be a guy to keep an eye on as well. But Solomon Tula Pupu, you mentioned Sean Tula. Yes. I asked him what's his reaction going to be when he makes that first big play. And he said, I might run on the field and get a 15-yard flag. So we'll see if that happens. I just <laughs> want to see Solomon Tulialapupu out there healthy and playing and you know enjoying enjoying life because he's such a he's such a fun – he has so much energy and such a fun personality. So hopefully we get to see that this season. LT fan want to know, was there a position group that at first appeared questionable, but now you seem a little bit more confident in? That's a very interesting yeah. question. And I think I stick right there where we're at. And defensive line, I'm gaining a little bit more confidence in them. I'm not going to say that I am confident in them because I'm still concerned about the depth and the high-end talent. Um, but I'm getting a little bit more, a little bit more. I get, again, not being able to see competitive periods, was the one, whether it just be the one-on-ones or whatever, makes it that a little bit more difficult for me. But just kind of listening to people, defensive line is the one that, that stood out to me there. Yeah, uh, I think I actually have to go tight end. Um, mm. I think – Going into this fall camp, I really didn't know what to expect from that position. Obviously, the couple of names that for me that stood out were Michael Maps and Lake McCree. Those were the two names that I really paid attention to. But I mean, really, I'm intrigued by this by this group, and I think they're they're really going to contribute. I think it's going to be interesting to see how they just fit into the offense. Um, there's some names we talked about it earlier. Obviously, Josh Follow. Um, that's another person that we could see contribute so i think that's one group that i was i feel like you know coming in i didn't really know what to expect and now i feel a little bit more confident defensive line is another one for sure but tight ends for me that definitely stands out so far all right we're going to try to rapid fire because we're around the one hour mark maybe a minute or two over right now so try to rapid fire the rest of these and get through as many as we can before we have to hop off of here socal fan mv how do you think espn withdrawing from big 10 negotiations will affect the pac-10 and they called it the Pac-10. Wow. No longer the Pac-12. I, I told a Pac-12 coach that today, baseball coach. I was like, he said they had a meeting with the Pac-12, and I said, "You mean the Pac-10?" <laughs> he said, "Ouch." Yeah. I, honestly, I think this helps. That helps them a lot, really. I mean, I think ESPN. They're really going to have basically the SEC is really the main conference that we're dealing with. I don't. They have. A, they have a deal with ACC as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, they do. So I think losing the Big Ten obviously hurts. Um, Pac-12 now is just in a position where they're a little bit vulnerable. Uh, they don't have a lot of leverage in terms of their negotiations with how they're going to be dealing. I think ESPN, people have really said that that late night Pac-12 after dark time, I guess, helps them. Um, so maybe they can just schedule more of those games. But, I mean, it definitely helps the Pac-10 or the Pac-12, whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't know how much it helps ESPN losing the Big Ten, but it does help that conference. I am curious. I know this this has come up, uh, but people have talked about, similar to the NHL, when ESPN lost that you know those TV rights, how little it was covered on ESPN going forward. And, you know, ESPN is still the worldwide leader in sports. They still have the college football playoff show and all that stuff. So if the Big Ten is not on their networks, they'll still talk about them some but I feel like the amount of talk when you have the college football live or whatever TV show it is, the game day, I think the you're just going to see, you know, and there will be able to someone will be able to measure that. But um, I, I'm sure that it will shrink how much they talk about the Big Ten because you, do, if you're a, a broadcast company, you don't want to show someone else's highlights all over and over and over on your on your station. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing because we always talk about how you know the the West uh, East Coast bias and stuff. Well, now is it going to be? 
southeast bias yeah, yeah. or you know just uh, anti northeast bias with and LA with the the Big Ten. So we'll see how that kind of plays out. Marv Jr. asks, what is the best marker to determine how good the two lines are performing in camp? Is it the ones against ones over a certain period of time? Or is there another way to measure how much progress they're making when they're going against each other? At some point, they know each other's play by alignment or other cues. And yeah, one-on-ones can tell you something. Again, this is something we can't really watch anymore. But it's how well they're gelling as a unit and hearing the coaches talk about how, you know, are they taking that next step as individual units and then can they start mixing and matching and do some different things i think that's probably the best way that you can determine the lines rather than looking at one day is okay is usc running the ball really well is that the offensive line or is that the defense line struggling but really it's the line play is something that remains a little bit of an unknown until you actually get in a game against someone else yeah just add real quick i mean yeah we just have to hear it from the people that are around the team coaches players um, the bad thing part about that is that you're really hearing it from their perspective. And look, a position coach, I feel like, is not going to say, hey, this player's just not been well. Um, so that that's something that you just kind of have to find out yourself through one-on-ones or just hope to win. Read between the lines sometimes. Yep, exactly. Luna, 1990, who do you think wins the tackle spots? Yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit. Um, I know yesterday in... And Chris Trevino's his uh, ghost notes. Um, he basically said that uh, I think it was Jonah Monim and Corner Ford who were playing on those tackle positions. I think those will be at, those two names will be there. Um, those tackle positions. Obviously, Bobby Askins will have a say, um, but I th- I'm I'm riding with those two names. I've heard a lot of positive things about him. Lincoln Riley talked positively about Jonah Monheim, what he did in the spring, um, and I talked with him for a good while about what he'd worked on to improve after struggling at times last year. So I got confidence that both those guys are going to take a step forward. So I'm going to go with them, the two the two returners at those two tackle positions. And he and Luna also asked, is Caleb going to run like all Lincoln's QBs have in the past, or will not having a mobile backup limit how many design runs Lincoln calls? I don't think it's going to, he's going to change his play calls at all, but Lincoln doesn't always run the QBs. Baker Mayfield was not running a bunch of QB draws or anything. It all depends on what he has. Lincoln Riley wasn't throwing the tight end all the time unless he had Mark Andrews. So I think Lincoln Riley, one of the things that one of the players have mentioned, one of the things the players have mentioned is that he is going to highlight the good players he has. And that goes back to that Josh Follow comment. If you take care of your business and you're a baller, he's going to put you on the field and you're probably going to make plays. So we'll see how that plays out. But I don't think you're going to see the play calling change uh, just because, you know, Miller Moss is the backup for USC. SC Grad 96, because practices are close to fans, the media has limited access, the Trojan PR machine is in full swing. Do you have any recommended data points or position groups we should be looking at during fall camp to help us, the fans, estimate how good this year's team will be or do we need to wait for the games to find out? Yeah, I, you know, nothing really comes off the top of my head. Obviously, make sure you look at USFootball.com for most up-to-date information, <laughs> uh, as I would say. Um, but really, you, I, nothing comes off the top of my head, so I would say just wait for the games. I mean, you, you don't really know until the games. I mean, going in last year, I with the talent that was on the team, I felt like the team was capable of winning eight, nine, ten games. The schedule was favorable for them. Everything kind of lined up. They didn't, you know, the, when things could have been worse on the schedule, when you could have been in Colorado for the cold, or you could have been here for this, or you could have been a back-to-back, none of those things were against USC. 
and still they struggled because the coaching wasn't good and the players, you know, ended up being falling apart kind of. So it, it takes being in a game and kind of seeing how things go and it won't happen that first week. They should just roll right through Rice. So we'll see what happens that second week against Stanford, you know, and, and see, see see some things that, you know, whether or not this team is fully capable of what it is and, you know, still has to grow or if, you know, if, if it's just not going to be a good season from what we had anticipated just because things aren't gelling together. But all the conversation so far, I, I think you're looking at a team that is, you know, going to continue to get better as the season progresses. Big T, uh, Shotgun, how do you feel about the point guard position on the basketball team? Looks like they'll play it by committee, which worries me. Also, why has it been so quiet on the basketball team in recruiting in the NIL front this offseason? Thought for sure the basketball team could benefit the most from the new NIL rules or lack of rules. I think, again, that comes as far as NIL. That goes back to the collective conversation we had at the very beginning of the season. How do you feel, about Anthony, about the point guard position on the, on the basketball team this season? Looks like it's going to be Boogie Ellis as the primary ball handler, Drew Peterson as a co-primary ball handler, with Kobe Johnson you know, being the primary backup to come in and kind of run the point when he comes on the court. Um, pretty much the same as last year. Yeah, I don't really have any problems, I think, with either of those players. Um, I know Drew Peterson spent a lot of time working on his handle um, and just his shot. Um, he's obviously a taller guard. I really want to see how Boogie Ellis plays this year. Will he take a step forward? He lacked some consistently he, consistency last season. He got a little hot as the games went on. Um, I just want to see if he can put it all together. Uh, Kobe Johnson I like a lot um, just as a defender. I think... What they're missing, though, is that Ethan Anderson player to really just come and run the show. When he would come in last season, he would just kind of seem like he would calm everything down, limit the turnovers. How will, you know, who will take that role? Um, will it be Drew Peterson? I don't, I really don't know. So that's, I think, my main concern. Um, other than that, I think they've got a pretty strong backcourt. Defense, though, is, is the problem. I don't know how Boogie and Drew will. Yeah, I, Drew, I think, is a better defender. Um, but how will that work? I'm, I'm really not sure. I think both of those guys have to take steps forward in their game. And, and in different ways, uh, Drew has to be more consistent on the defensive end. I mean, 6'9", yeah. those long arms as at a guard position. He can move with guys when he puts in that full effort on the defensive end. So if he takes that step forward, I mean, you could look at a guy and go, if he can knock down some threes, that's at least a three and D guy in the in the NBA. If he consist, consistently can play defense, just because of the length, the size, and all that. And Boogie Ellis, the same thing. I think he's got to take a step forward. He's got to take a step forward in running the show. Yeah, and not you know there were times when he would just kind of disappear. And you know you need him to like be commanding. And you know the things that Ethan Anderson could do just as a leader. Boogie Ellis has to take a step up, especially with Ethan Anderson not being there this year, is to say, hey, you know, be the one to yell at somebody if need be. Maybe that's not his personality, but you need him to take that step forward and take command of the team because Ethan Anderson, captain gone. Isaiah Mobley, captain gone. And Max Agbonpola, the other older player on the team, is also gone. Chavez Goodwin, Isaiah White, they need both Drew Peterson and Boogie Ellis to step up in a leadership role as well. So I think both those guys got to take step forwards, and I think they're both perfectly capable. And from what we've seen in the past of what USC's basketball players do year over year, I'm confident that they will. 
you know, because we've seen guys take big jumps, you know, a lot, a lot in the past. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful for them that they can do that because USC needs them to because they need those guards to lead the way this year with those young bigs. And I think that's going to be the, the, a big that's going to be a big determining factor in what this team can actually do. Yeah, one thing real quick about those two. they Well, they obviously entered the draft, and they got feedback. So they mm-hmm. know what they need to work on, and they know what they need to do. And, and this is Drew Peterson's last year. I'm assuming this might be Boogie Ellis' last year as well um, because if he stays one more year, it might look bad. So I think they're, they're, they might be motivated. They want to make it make it work. So, you know, I'm interested to see how that plays out. If you go into the draft, you're you know, and you come back to school, you're usually not coming back for more than yeah. one year. So uh, I don't I don't know the exact numbers or figures on that of how many people have actually done that, but that usually tells you, hey, I'm ready. I want to go in and get that feedback to know what I need to work on this year and go forward with it. Last question comes from Fight On with you know F Y T O N. I guess that's Fight On too. Uh, Coach Riley seems to be a well oiled machine. I don't know how he is right. a machine himself. I don't. I guess you have to talk to his family and how he can, uh, you know, do everything that possible as a family man. But he's running a well-oiled machine. It does seem like. So he asks, relentless in creating a culture, communicating to players how to get to the next level of accountability, all those things. And I would agree with those things so far. The players seem to have bought in. Can this team make the unfathomable leap of winning the Pac-12 championship and making the college football playoff? The classic question, can, will they win in the first year of the, the conference championship? Uh, I think the playoff is probably out of reach. Um, they would, I don't think they're better than Utah. Uh, I just feel really strongly about that. So, and they would have to beat Utah. They would, first, they would have to make that championship game. Um, and the divisions don't count this year. So that kind of makes it, might, might be a little harder, might be a little easier. We still just have to see. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think they have a shot of making it at least to the, to the conference championship game. What happens after that? We really don't know. I mean, it's about five, four or five months until then. So obviously, and like I said a little bit ago, I think USC can continue to get better as the season progresses. I think they could lose to Utah, still make the the, the Pac-12 championship and then beat Utah on a neutral site rather than being in Salt Lake City in December. And we'll see how that all plays out. I think they are capable, and I'm almost willing to buy in to that notion. I'm still going to say the college football playoff is is one step away from them, though I will point out, look at Michigan State last year. They were basically one game away from being able to be there. They were right there as you know as the you know stretch run goes down. They're in the conversation. They're in the top ten. I would say look at you know a couple other sports. And look at how transfers have played such a big role. And for me personally, being a baseball guy, look at I would say look at Texas A&M this year. They went from being awful. They get a new head coach in Jim Sloshnagel, came over from TCU. They got some key transfers. And that team went from being, you know, just a – they were a talent void to suddenly they had enough talent and with the right coaching, pushing the right buttons, they were able to make it to the College World Series. Now that's the that's the top eight versus the top four, so you know it's a little bit different. It's harder to break through in the college you know college football playoff because you can't really control your own destiny per se. You can't win your way in. You know you got to be there to begin with. You can't go on a run um, late in the season type of thing. So I think they're still one step away. But again, I'll say I'm gaining more confidence in this team, listening to the way they talk, listening to the, the conversations about culture. And maybe they're still a year, maybe even two years away, whatever it may be. But I think USC fans just have to be excited with the steps that are being taken. And 
the answering of questions that were constant in the past. Why can't they? Why can't they make adjustments? Uh, you know, to the schedule. Why, you know, mix things up. Why can't they keep the players on their toes? Why? Why does it seem like the players aren't accountable? Why does some players get to come to summer workouts and some players don't have to? You know, those type of things that were fans were complaining about. Some of the players were complaining about. All that seems to be kind of pushed out the window. And hey, the, you know, it's a brand new roster, and there's some still issues on that roster and some question marks. But I think just what we've heard in the last week gives you more confidence. Now, what happens when they get an offensive line injury? What happens when they get a second offensive line injury? What happens if Travis Dye and Austin Jones go? To, what you know, there's a lot of question marks that could come with a couple of injuries. But I'm gaining a little bit more confidence. Not going to go there yet, but I'm gaining a little bit more confidence. Yeah, I see your side. Uh, for me personally, I just have to see how they play, really, because um, they could say all about the culture stuff. They could talk about it. I just want to see how, when adversity comes, how will they react? That's that's just how I see it. But I get everything. I see I see what you're saying, and I see the optimism. I'm optimistic. I just have to see how they play. Um, I want to see how the defense looks. I just want to see it come together. That that's really my main thing. Valid point. No one going into fall camp ever says, "Man, our culture sucks." Yeah, exactly. We yeah. got <laughs> we got to fix some things with this culture because it sucks. No, everyone's always we had a great summer. We yeah. had a great. But I, I, the the things that I think are a little bit different are we've seen some physical transformations, and you know, sometimes you say, "Yeah, we're, we're good," but the talk of accountability and how this per, you know this thing was held accountable and this yeah. thing and giving specific examples lends me to believe they might actually be right this time. They might be telling the truth to us more for once. Definitely, well, definitely different people in leadership positions as well. So you might you know you, you might be uh, you have a reason to be optimistic. I would say. Well, thank you everyone to send in a, that sent us our. Well, thank you to everyone that sent us their questions. We really appreciate it. We hope we could provide a little bit of insight, a little bit different from what Ryan and Chris are providing. And you know, we're not getting to the recruiting side like Chris and Gerard, but make sure you guys are listening to the Two Star Podcast. You make sure you're listening to you know when you see us on Tunnel Vision, the Peristyle Podcast. This is why we try to bring you different perspectives, different opinions. A little bit different uh, format here, but uh, you know, thank you to Anthony for coming in the studio and joining me. Really appreciate it, you guys, and really appreciate you, Anthony, for being here. Yep, thank you so much for having me. <laughs>